Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, February 13th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. In addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December of 2018, we have featured over 145 poets in 17 countries on five continents, and we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can support us by going to poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate and donate via either PayPal or your preferred credit cards. And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, Ben Ellis. Hi, Ben. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hi, I'm Jane. Thank you so much for having me. It's an it's a absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you. Yeah, me too. You brought with your, your poem, There Is No Age. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. My name is Ben Ellis. Uh, him. I am a black queer poet living in Brighton, UK, right by the beach. Um, my poetry focus, focuses on, I like to say, the multiple layers that make us who we are. And I, I particularly focus on blackness and queerness and mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I love to write about identity in general because I've always been fascinated by the concepts of and the power surrounding identities, mm-hmm. um, whether it's code switching or assimilation, and whether it's assimilation for safety or assimilation for other reasons. I've always been intrigued by, you know, how we move through the world with our different identities that we almost wear like coats, mm-hmm. in essence. In terms of background, I... Um, was born and raised in Italy, uh, and I'm a third culture kid. I'm not sure whether adults can call themselves third culture kids, but I'll claim it anyway. Um, so essentially, the, the country that my parents come from is different from the country I was born in, mm-hmm. which is also different from the country of my core formative years, um, as I live in the UK currently. Mm-hmm. Um, and as part of that, I've, I've always been quite conscious of the fact that I don't feel like I belong anywhere but at the same time there's the freedom in that it, there's a freedom in just being able to just go anywhere and make home wherever you feel like it wherever wherever feels like can be a place that can accommodate that mm. um and that too fits into identity too so like it, it's, it's a lot of our poems revolve around just parts of us and parts of me mm. Mm. how long were you living in italy uh, before you moved to the uk so I was in Italy until uh, age 15, and then I moved to the UK, and I've been here ever since, actually. Um, yeah. But I'd say that my core formative years were definitely my late teens and 20s, because that was almost like a rebirth after leaving a, a, a cult that I was raised in. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it, it was a, a chance for me to, in a way, reborn it's a poetry podcast so i'm sure that people won't be rolling their eyes by hearing this but it was a chance for me to just yeah recreate myself and find myself and in a way just raise myself so that's why i look at that time as my core formative years as in that's actually what formed me to what you know who i am today mm-hmm. when you say cult did i did i hear you right you said cult right? yes mm-hmm. <laughs> i 
Interesting story. I was actually raised essentially by two doomsday preppers. Oh, wow. And so I, yeah, I pretty much grew up in that cult. Um, and it was an interesting dynamic to be raised in, and I'm using air quotes now, but like a quote-unquote Christian cult, mm. um, while also living and growing in um, northern Italy, where I was one of the very few black kids in my, even in my hometown. Mm. And so it was the whole, you know, trying to find what it meant for me to be Italian, mm -hmm. while other Italians around me would say that I can't call myself that because I don't look like them, mm. while also trying to find a way for me to reconcile blackness with Christianity, well, in the context of this cult, while also reconciling that with queerness. Mm -hmm. And, and we, which takes me all the way back to just writing about identity. And actually writing has, was and still is helpful for me to try and make sense of the world. I, I, I think a lot of times people just take on different passions, habits, and, um, and then things from culture just as a way to make sense of the world. And I think sometimes for some people, religion can be that as well. Mm -hmm. Whereas in, in my case, it was actually poetry. Poetry has been my therapy to try and understand myself and try and validate who I was. Mm -hmm. And in, in the fact that I wasn't one of the very few black characters that I would see on Italian TV. And I wasn't also uh, like the, the very few queer characters that were in Italian TV. And also wasn't like the Italian characters that were most for sure on TV. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I, that doesn't remove my, 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 you know, my validity. The fact that I am who I am and I'm, I'm valid in, in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. It's, um, yeah, it's a lot of um, layers <laughs> to deal with, isn't it? Is, um... It is. Yeah. <laughs> it, <laughs> I would have never guessed that you actually uh, only moved to the UK in your teen years because you have no trace of Italian accent whatsoever. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, um, I actually worked really hard to get rid of strong traces of it. Mm. Because when I first got to the UK, I learned quickly that I had to assimilate mm. to be safe. I had to assimilate to not look like an outsider. Mm. And I already knew what it was like to be an outsider. I was a one of the very few black people in, in, in my Italian, you know, dominantly white hometown. Mm. And I didn't want to feel that again, especially because when I remember one of my first memories when I, you know, when I got off the plane was, why there's a lot of black people here? There's a lot of brown people here. Oh my goodness, we're not the only ones. <laughs> and, and so I thought, well, this is an opportunity to actually feel like I belong somewhere, like to find my crew, my people. Mm. And I thought for me to do that, I need to blend in. I need mm. to make sure that I, you know, I can just get in the conversation with no one saying, you're new here, aren't you? And it took me a while to realize that actually I could have also just been myself and be content with that. I'm like mm. I, I, attracting the people that are okay with you being you rather than attracting people who are only okay with you just looking like them. Because homogeneity is not something I want in my life right now. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. yeah. My accent right at the moment is a... It's a, a it's a mixture of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I'll speak at work, for instance, because I work as a researcher, and sometimes I'll speak at work and I'll get a, a, a message from someone saying, are you from this place? Are you from this country? Because some people can kind of detect. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's quite nice to have a hybrid. 
accent, but yeah. there's a whole history behind that. Right, right. And thank you for yeah. explaining. I think it's for people who don't necessarily or aren't third culture, culture kids or did not grow up speaking another language or did not have the experience of feeling like you need to blend in in order to maybe have a chance at being accepted, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think it's difficult for those people to understand that constant anxiety. Yeah. I, I'm so glad to hear that now you feel like you can just be, you know, it's, it's a yes. good place to be. Yeah. Going back to poetry, you kind of mentioned a little uh-huh. bit about how you've always used poetry as a therapeutic tool, just, I guess, naturally. Um, how did you get into poetry to, get, to begin with? I've been writing poetry and novels and short stories and long stories ever since I started writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember that I wasn't allowed to have things like, you know, Disney movies or anything like that at home. But mm-hmm. the only things that I could have, the only material that I had was just Bible books and Bible stories. Mm-hmm. And so I would mimic the writing and just remix the stories a bit. As in, what if Adam was black? <laughs> or mm-hmm. like, but, but what if this happened instead? Mm-hmm. And, and of course it was just gibberish, but I always had that drive to just write a story because I thought, okay, well, stories are everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's just nice to just have them there, just have a testament, a document of, yeah, that's my story. Um, mm-hmm. And then eventually when it, it, you know, it came to actual you know, proper writing rather than just gibberish at four or whatever, I was writing, but I didn't see myself in what I was writing. Mm-hmm. So um, to put it into perspective, in the, in the curriculum that, you know, that I grew up with, when it came to poetry, literature in general, but specifically poetry, I was only spoon-fed just white male poets. Mm. Occasionally, we would have a white female poet if it was International Women's Day or month. But that was the, you know, the exception that we had. Mm. I was never taught any black poets, or any brown poets, or any queer poets, disabled poets, any gender non-binary or non-conforming poets. Like, that was not a thing that I was taught at all. Mm. And... I also didn't have access to the internet. I mean, I I didn't grow up with it. I mm. when I grew up, the internet was you know finally getting big and computers being a, a, a thing that people could have in their home in the living room. But even then, it was just like closed and monitored. So I only had access to maybe Yahoo.com and Yahoo Answers and whatever. Oh, wow. um, but I, I didn't really have access to resources that showed me that there are a lot of poets that don't fit in the white cis male or occasionally white cis female template. And mm-hmm. so it was only when I came to the UK and finally got access to, you know, private internet just on my phone mm-hmm. that I, I got caught in, you know, one of those like YouTube, like, it was a YouTube vortex where you search for a keyword and then it takes you to another related video. And then before you know it, it's 4 a.m. and you haven't slept here, you're supposed to go work in the morning. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was definitely, as a student, I was caught in a lot of those. And one day I thought, I'm just going to search for poetry. Mm. And I typed black poetry. And the first search results that I had was um, from Death Jump Poetry. Mm. And I thought, whoa, I, I had like Erica Badu, Fia uh, Monnier, I had Lauren Hill, Common, Felicia Rashad. I only knew her as the wife and mother and matriarch and queen of the Cosby show. Mm-hmm. But it was when I saw her poem, I think her poem was 
because other status or own status. I can't remember the exact word, but I can still remember how it made me feel. It made me feel seen. It made me feel validated and comforted. And I felt that, wow, I can do that too. Like, I've been writing all along. That is valid then. Mm-hmm. And then I did some more research. Dev Jam Poetry was mostly the 90s um, and early noughties. And then I did research for um, modern poetry. Mm-hmm. And that's when I came across the first poem, the first modern poet that I came across was Daniel Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, I was 23 and I saw them performing Genesis, which was about being black and queer, specifically black and trans, actually, mm-hmm. in the black church. And I remember I cried. I was under the pillows with my phone and my, you know, my knockoff headphones just crying. Because mm-hmm. um, they were performing with such visceral force and love and passion. Mm-hmm. And I felt that intensity and I thought, I, I can relate to that. I can relate to them on that stage right now performing. And that is what gave me the, you know, the nudge that I've been writing. I just need to just polish it, just mm-hmm. get into the craft of it, just mm-hmm. get better at it and get in the practice of it, find other people who are doing the same as well mm-hmm. and get into it. That's actually how I solidified my decision to follow poetry as the passion for me. And mm-hmm. eventually, because I was in London, there's so many poetry events. And then um, I went to um, Poetry LGBT, which is, um, well, was a London-based queer event, but it's, it's now online. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the first poetry event that I attended. And it was, the audience was mostly black, mm-hmm. but it was, and, it, and it was all queer uh, with a few allies here and there. And that was the first time at 23 that I saw a black person who was not straight. Mm. And, and and so it, it was just a, a whirlwind of experiences and emotions. And it was, in a way, I found myself through poetry. Mm-hmm. I found that there are so many ways to be black and so many ways to be queer, so many ways to be all these different things. And all of them are valid. And it was just nice to see this whole platter mm-hmm. of blackness and queerness just in front of me so that is the long story of how I got into poetry first by not feeling like it was something for me but still something that I gravitated towards Mm. and then to seeing that actually there are people who look like me or sound like me or who have similar experiences like mine Mm. who write about experiences similar to mine or even different experiences and they're still worth listening and reading and paying for and yeah it's been a journey yeah yeah wow wow yeah i can imagine that you know italy being (laughs) being what it is uh, that it must have had plenty of its own poetry from its own history long very long storied history that it wanted to you know disseminate through the generations perhaps not echoing as much contemporary Italian culture, because at least in the bigger towns, there are people of color. But yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even in smaller towns. In fact, I was just interviewing a poet, also a black poet, but I think she also lived in Italy for a while, but she was telling me about this Ethiopian refugee who went and lived in this small Italian town. I was doing very well as a, a goat herder. And it kind of made the townspeople uh-huh. jealous because they were all like, but this is not Italian culture and stuff. And I was just like, oh, come on. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, so so there are um, black people in Italy, throughout Italy, um, perhaps not in this as much in the smaller towns. So, um, so it's really interesting to hear your experience as well, personally, having lived that experience. Sure, and and, and, it, and one, one thing that I'm, I'm happy about, even though I still feel that disconnect between myself and like, my Italian identity because of the whole, oh, you can claim it, but you also can't claim it. I, I love seeing black and POC artists with creatives, writers, poets, and, and, like coming up and being vocal thanks to social media, thanks to the internet, mm-hmm. which can be a weapon, but also can also be a platform for good. It was nice for me to recently discover, you know, all of these artists and writers who are black, all POC, who are also Italian, and they're telling these stories, and they're saying, yes, this is my story, and I'm going to put it in a movie version or a poetry version. There's this um, writer called Antonio Dichele Di Stefano, and mm-hmm. he recently got a deal with Netflix to film the very first movie on the black Italian experience on an online platform, which I thought, 2021, the first one, because we've, we've been here, right. um, but it, it, it just fills me with so much pride to just see all of these people, and then of course I just dropped all of my coins on all of the books that he had on, the, on, on his website, because <laughs> I thought, I want to I know more about this person, right. but it's just seeing that, I thought, I, I didn't have that growing up. I didn't mm-hmm. have that network, that connection. But I still want to give back. I still want to, you know, just listen to all of it and then support to you know, support all of them. And yeah, it, it, it also makes me feel nostalgic all of a sudden. So but yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, understandable. And I think, you know, it, it is that both the small town and also the isolation because you couldn't access the internet as well that that made the isolation more and made the contrast more palpable um but before we keep going down this wonderful really tangent at the same time i'm like you need to read your poem for us um and you also brought a preamble about your poem so um i think you should just uh talk about that and then read your poem uh, and explain a bit uh, the preamble if you like Sure. So I, I can start reading first and then talk about both the preamble and the poem afterwards? Or? Sure, sure. Sure, perfect, okay. So the poem is called This Is No Age. Preamble. Don't let them tomb you out just for a poem about your dead relative or your dead friend or your dead lover or your dead skinful or your dead self. Don't let them make you write a poem in bullet points about bullets, lest you turn your poem into a huge board, lest you turn the night into a seance, lest you disturb the dead for the pleasure of those who treat poetry nights like oppression safari. Don't let them minstrel your soul. Don't let them blackface your wounds. Don't let them pinkwash the fear you have to hold your lover's hands down the streets. Don't let them glitter bomb your struggle. Remember, the poem is never any better than the poem. Remember, your safety and well-being as a poet always comes first. Mm. Right. So, on to This Is No Age. This is no age. To die, to disappear, to be taken, to be shaken by earthquakes and sharks in the water, to drink the same water the sharks swim in, to drink the sharks, to drown in them and not die, to survive, to come back, to test nature, to test resurrection, to roll back the years, simply red waves, 
blank stares and eyes, gone but unable to die completely, unable to disappear completely, us stubborn black children, we don't know how to go quietly, we've never been taught silence. So to die, to survive, to return, to invite an uprising, to incite an insurrection, us stubborn black children, we just don't know how to die a nonviolent death. We just don't know how to leave without leaving a trace. We just don't know how to leave the earth without a mark. No one's taught us how to. Thank you. When you were uh, reading the preamble poem, I was thinking, wow, we could have just had a discussion on that because, <laughs> yeah, it, it is so rich and, uh, you know, full of the important topics about, especially given all that happened last year, but as I said before, forever, you know, this, this dominant narrative of black pain almost being transformed into entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that line about don't let the glitter bomb, was it your, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, don't let them glitter bomb your struggle. Um, and, and, and I wrote that, but actually the, I wrote the preamble two years two years after I wrote This Is No Age. Um, and, and the preamble I wrote that last year because mm. I got exhausted by seeing black death mm-hmm. on my feet, hearing about black death everywhere, including, you know, like, like you, you'll get in a, in, a, in a cab and, you know, the, the cab driver will just say, oh, you're black. Something black happened in the news. I guess I'm gonna to have to talk to you about it. <laughs> and and, and mm-hmm. I just got tired of it, exhausted of it. Mm-hmm. And I also realized that a lot of black and POC, but specifically black poets, were called upon to give a poem of hope or give a poem about the times. And a lot of those poems were traumatic. Like they they came from a place of trauma, a place of triggers, a place of survival more than thriving. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what must it feel like to be, you know, to, to be on the, the receiving end, mm-hmm. to have someone contact you and say, you know, hey, please come and speak at this event. We may or may not pay you. And even if we do pay, you might not even be that much that you need anyway. But please perform about your black pain because we need some representation. We need, you know, we need that. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking we, we're also going through it too. <laughs> like we're also going through the whole process of, thinking what is going on Mm -hmm. like this is going on again and then thinking again 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 every time that it happens and i just got tired of not only the pigeonholing of black poets into just talking about black trauma and black pain and black death Mm -hmm. but also realized that similar things happen when it comes to other minorities the marginalized communities as well Mm -hmm. as in calling upon queer poets just to talk about queer stuff or calling upon trans poets just to talk about the trans experience. I'm thinking there is so much more that we can also offer and talk about. And so um, once I realized what was going on, I thought I do, whenever I perform a poem about black pain, black struggle, or anything that may be traumatic around blackness, I always now start with this bramble, with this intro. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it serves two purposes. One is a reminder to myself to not only be true to myself, but also to remember that this is not all I've got. Yeah. That this is 
but a portion of the, the poems that I have, but a portion of the experience that I'm living. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second, the, the second reason as well is kind of an, an, an advisory warning, not only to other black poets in the, the audience who may be thinking that, well, for me to still keep getting those bookings, I need to keep performing about this. But it's also to those, as I said, who, who treat uh, poetry nice like oppression safari. Mm. Um, there, there were times, oh my God, there were times when I first started performing poetry and a lot of it was about black pain because I saw a lot of other black poets performing often about black pain. And then I saw the reception that would have, you know, from some members of the audience who couldn't really relate to a black experience, but would, would enjoyed coming to this night. And some of the really weird and borderline inappropriate uh, compliments I received, as in, oh, that, that, that was so beautiful. The way you talked about the lynching, thinking, <laughs> ma'am, not today, <laughs> not tonight, not in this economy. It definitely, like, it took me a while to realize that, wow, some people actually do revel in, in that. It's just like seeing pain in this beautiful package, but it's still from afar, but it's still such a, like, it's so violent, but still you're not close to it, but mm-hmm. this is the closure you can get to it. Mm-hmm. And this thrill, this feeling may be a thrill to them, but it, it, it is emotionally taxing, it's emotional labor, and it's honestly not healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, yeah, it's, it's a reminder for myself as well as an advisory warning for those who are there just to witness black pain as, as a way to say, I'm not here for you. Like, you just happen to be in the audience, but you are not my audience right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a minority female poet <laughs> as well, it's I do feel like when I'm submitting poems, especially depending on the publication, sometimes I look at what they publish when that's available. And I'm like, oh, you only want me if I was to frame my story this way. If I only tell this part of my story, because that's all you accept of me. And it is um, very frustrating. And because a lot of the poetry world, especially when you're submitting, right, it's unsaid. People usually just reject you without giving you any feedback. And so you can only tell peripherally by what they publish, really what they are looking for, because they always tell you, oh, look at, read our magazines, read our journals, and submit similar stuff. And, (laughs) and, And especially if they don't publish a lot of people of color, then every story of that or every repetition of stories like that becomes a reinforcement of a stereotype. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as well as giving opportunities to black poets and POC poets who are who are willing to share that, but only giving it to, you know, on those conditions that also perpetuates that whole vicious cycle of, you know, the only few available opportunities are around pain, and so you as a black poet have to write about pain if you want to have that opportunity. And it, it just keeps on going around and around and around. And I did fall into that when I first began until I realized that it was not healthy for me, but also it was until I took a step back and asked myself, who is this for? Like, who, who am I writing this for? Am I still writing for me? Mm. Or am I writing for an audience that has a very different purpose to mine? Mm. And that is that is 
what made me just, you know, take stock of what I was doing and just write about actually what I wanted to write about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, it it's not black paint in general, right? It's not different facets of black paint. It's a very specific kind of black paint mm. that yeah. is looked for as well. Yeah. And so, <laughs> as you said, you know, the poets who are tapped on to do that is living in that experience. It's not some study of, uh, I don't know, a landscape or something, you know, when you think of (laughs) the sort of poetry that a lot of uh, journals publish. It's a very existential sort of reflection that's on pretty things. Um, It's like, oh, look at this apple. How do I write about this apple using my senses? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and sometimes it feels so trivial. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a very great point because I think when I first started writing poetry, I, I definitely found it hard to write about things like nature and the rivers and, you know, like the hills and the countryside and other topics that I was raised on because the only poets that I saw writing about that were the only poets that I grew up with, which were white Italian poets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so it took me a while to realize that actually, yeah, I can write a poem about just it being winter and it being cold. I can write a, um, a poem about uh, love and heartbreak. I can write about so many other things. Uh, and also, as you, as you, you know, perfectly said, um, especially when, not all black pain is wanted on the page. Um, as in, like, it's usually the, the brutal, sensational black pain that is requested, but not the black pain of, you know, like, uh, growing up poor, or like the black pain of having to survive by any means necessary. Like, like those are not the ones that are as appealing as the brutal ones, which, which is sad. Um, but yeah. also I think that like, just being able to see that it's a nice reminder that we can write about whatever we want to write about. We can be black and write about things that aren't quote unquote traditionally black and still be a poem written by a black poet. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's just it. It's highlighting only certain narratives means that again, they do not see the breadth of the black experience as in these are full human beings who have, very different experiences, again, depending depending on so many different factors, class as well, because, um, you know, not every black person lives in utter poverty. There are very wealthy black people, even within the UK, within the US context. Um, Absolutely. So it, it is very limiting when this is the only subject that a black poet is asked to touch touch on and also <laughs> then having having uh, audience uh, go up to them and dissect their poem as if they're dissecting yeah. uh, a still life poem or something exactly yes yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was also one of the reasons that i wrote um, in, the, um, in the poem um that the poem is never any better than the poet um, which mm-hmm. even though I wrote it down, I, I struggled for a, a long time with that statement. Because mm-hmm. um, at first I wrote it because I thought, well, you can only create something that is 
equally representative of you, as in your skill set and your artistry, or perhaps worse than that. Like sometimes, yeah, I do write sloppy poems, and sometimes I write poems that are disjointed and that need loads and loads of editing. Mm -hmm. But I cannot write something that is better than me because mm -hmm. if, if if I write something, I think that oh, this is so excellent that that actually is a sign that wow, I've grown then. Like, mm -hmm. This is growth on paper. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was it was a reassuring thought that, hey, you will write some great poems, and that means that you're doing great, and you will write some bad poems sometimes. And that doesn't mean that you're a bad poet, because the fact that you've written great poetry in the past means that your bar is this high. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we limbo underneath it, and sometimes we match it, but mm -hmm. we can always raise it and get better. And yeah. so for a while, because I, I struggled to believe that statement even though i wrote that down i then changed that um for, for a while to remember your art is just as important as the artist behind it because mm. i thought well, that's a much safer statement to have and then i changed it back because i thought no actually i think that this is a nice pep talk to have within this preamble of <laughs> reminding people that you know you you are more than the poem you wrote and you as a poet are also evolving and even though your poem may be static as in the, the poem you wrote two years ago reflects where you were two years ago but as a poet you're still growing so even though maybe your material back then used to be most about black pain or and now has you know changed into a more diverse range of topics around the black experience and other experiences as well it, it, it is a sign of your growth and we should be able to just pause and realize that yeah i am growing the bar is higher now than it was years ago and I consider my poetry. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think that line is true just because of the fact that whatever we write, even as if it's our best work ever, the fact is it only captures a moment of us. Exactly. And we yeah. as people are so much more complex. Uh -huh. And I, I think people who consume art, um, right, even, even those who are artists themselves, sometimes we love the art much more than the person. Oh, yeah. Again, because of this complexity of the person that produced the art, because they don't, we don't just present our best selves every time, all the time. When people get to know us, we become ourselves entirely, in our entirety. Honestly, perfectly said. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't even know if we should be talking about this as no age because honestly, that preamble poem is just so uh, amazing in itself. And um, so, Rich, but do you what um, is there a particular thing that you um, want to, people to tease out of this is no age? Because um, when I read it, it felt to me like a refugee story um i i, I love that you said that i i um i performed it a few times and i had a few black immigrants tell me that they were able to see themselves in it and mm -hmm. i thought well as a black immigrant myself as well i i'm i'm, I'm glad that, that you know, that's the impact that, that you felt and i i love that you know the, the, i was similar reactions from um, uh, a couple of refugees that I've um, worked in, in the audiences that have uh, performed this poem in. And uh, the, 
the inspiration for this was um, well, the, the, the part inspiration for this was actually a poem by um, a poet called um, Asia Brian Wilkerson. Uh, she's got a poem called The Question Poem. And in it, she has, um, and I hope I'm not butchering her, her lines, but it's something along the lines of, um, if you know my name only because I suffer, but you never hear me suffering, then do I actually exist? Mm. And when does my body get to be a metaphor for love? Do mm. I ever get to give my body a name? The body is a metaphor, but when does my body get to be a literary device for something other than grief? Mm. Oh that was a huge driver for me to uh, like rewrite and like edit this poem because essentially I think like this poem is is a a story about black survival and the creative ways in which we survive, mm. um, as well as the the systems that we're in that you know sometimes those are the same ones that we kind of survive away from. Hence lines like. Um, you know, to drink the same water the sharks swimming, mm. knowing that you are literally within a system that was not built for you, mm. and yet you're still doing your very best to survive, mm. um, if not thrive. So yeah, this is my almost like my rally, my rally cry, like the poem I go to whenever I want to remind myself that actually we we've survived. We've gone through stuff. The, 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 uh, as a person, like it's, it's nice for me to be able to say, I've gone through stuff and I've got a track record of going through stuff. Mm. And therefore, that that is enough. <laughs> that, that is enough proof that I can get through the next bit. Mm. And what I also love is, is the uh, addition of nature and the supernatural. I do like to play with those themes in my poetry. Mm. Um, not only because of the imagery and the, you know, the metaphors that can come out of it, but also because... Oftentimes, when it comes to really complex situations and experiences, sometimes the best way to make sense of it is just to call, to call on like the supernatural, to, to, to call on imagery that isn't that day-to-day. That's why I love phrases like, you know, black girl magic. Like, yes, like just because we're magic doesn't mean we're invisible. Like, yes, um, I mean, I say we, like black girls, <laughs> black, black girl magic, but it's just, these imageries of the water and mm. the, like, the supernatural, like, these are themes that have been used throughout decades when it comes to creative work around Afrofuturism, for instance. It's mm-hmm. just kind of a reinforcing hope mm. that even if what we see on the ground right now feels heavy and looks like doom and gloom, there is a lot of strength that we sometimes just get out of nowhere, mm. whole strength in that nowhere. Keep that like that. You you have track record of getting that strength out, even in the times when you felt you didn't have any to give to yourself. Yeah, I like. There, there are some days where I like the introverted like the actual poem. So I'm not surprised that I actually talked more about the, the preamble more than the the poem. But yeah, they, I feel like they 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 come hand in hand. They, this is no age being the poem about black strength and survival, while the preamble is more of a poem about black survival not being the only thing that black people can do and mm-hmm. can have and can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I actually quite like that these two go, you know, very well hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think so. And, um, I can understand why you read both together. Um, mm-hmm. I send you my poem mm-hmm. because of the idea of, survival but also sometimes 
being uh, triggered again and often by random, very just random things that um, that are hard to explain to people how it can be a trigger. Sometimes it's not hard to explain, but people don't listen. <laughs> so <laughs> that as well, and, and that's why I sent you my poem "Relapses." Uh, so I'm going to read that now, and we can talk about that uh, together with your poem. Um, Absolutely. Relapses. I've rushed into it again, body swooning over rage that breaks thoughts, like a tsunami losing balance. The peter-patter of small minds traipsing in myopia, left hidden paw prints to be discovered at random moments. Triggers pulled by invisible fingers will not take responsibility. That's all on me. That's all on me. I've got three fires burning and nothing to offer. The insatiable hunger too common everywhere that breathing is afforded room. Oh, leave the healing to me and the breaking to any he. This is my lot somewhere. There's a contract with a signature someone will claim is mine as though this body belongs to all. Am I the host to be consumed, the wine to be drunk? Let congregants take part, no matter their sins I'm to forgive. This is the age of no judgment, lest ye be judged. Thank you. I'm not sure if, if, if the clicks, are, if the snaps are coming through, but they're coming through. <laughs> <laughs> I hear them. I hear them. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. I, you know, I, I, I read it over and over and over again. But when I was reading it, it kind of felt like I was singing a cover. Whereas this sounds like, oh, I'm finally listening to the original. Like I'm having like an intimate performance from <laughs> the original artist. From, from the title itself, which I think is actually quite an interesting choice, which I would love to know what brought you to you know, title this relapses. But also, the, the so many lines from the, the "It's All on Me," which, and I also I just realized that I just literally just dive straight into the poem without even giving you a chance to, to like debrief. So um, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it really is a poem about relapses. Just feeling like psychologically back into the moment of trauma. Uh, and I imagine you've probably felt this before. Like I said, something. sometimes it's just somebody not meaning to. Sometimes it's them not caring to avoid it. Um, and to feel that moment where I get so angry that it literally, I feel like my brain um, have a circuit breaking moment where I, if I swear for nanoseconds I am not conscious yeah I felt this poem on a personal level the reason why as soon as we finish I was just so excited to just say so here's what I loved about it <laughs> thank um, you it, it is beautifully encapsulates what you feel like when um, well, listen, my experience when I read it 
I um, I feel like this was a nice representation of what it's like to dissociate post-trigger. Mm. Um, or what it's like to just almost remove yourself from yourself because that is the safest thing for you to do at that time, in that moment. Um, mm. And, I, I, yeah, I definitely, it, it definitely does come through. One what, what of what the lines that stuck with me was the two repeated lines, that's all of me, that's all of me. And I interpreted that as, you know, this is a thing that happens to us, as in this is habit. Mm. And I thought that actually oftentimes we do run the risk of doing that. Like we do run, we do go through the habits of doing that as in, oh, this, ha- this happened, it's, it's a black thing or it's a brown thing or mm. it's a female thing, it's a queer thing, it's an indigenous thing. Mm. And then you know, it actually took me, you know, it took my time in therapy to realize that actually it's not that it happens to us often, it's that it's been inflicted on us Mm. And so we need to put the onus back on the transgressors, not on the victims. And mm. and but so so when I read that, I definitely felt that vulnerability of when you go through that trigger and you think, I'll sort that out. Like I just need to maybe dissociate for a few seconds, maybe just you know find myself or like heal myself um, or break myself just to make you know make myself up again. But this is all on me. And and, and I when I got to the line, I had to pause. Because I, I thought, how many times did I say that to myself or think that to myself? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also not sure if I'm just subscribing my meaning to that, <laughs> where maybe that like, was a completely different, you know, intense behind it. So I was, I was actually quite interested to see what you felt about that, about those two repeated lines. The way I send people poems is like I read the feature poet's poem, and whatever feeling it brings me then my brain kind of searches through my file, um, <laughs> which is thinning out because my brain is not functioning like it should be, <laughs> like I want it to be. Um, so it will mentally kind of latch onto a poem that I wrote that has similar feelings because this is no age. Give uh, the reader a sense of overwhelming odds overwhelming odds and relapses is also that point where you're just like I've been triggered by somebody who's insensitive or inadvertent and this is all on me to fix it because society is not holding them accountable Um, and you know Society is still at the point where there many people can get away with saying, oh, you're just overreacting. That's why I was saying, I think you can relate to this. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it was, it was, you know, those lines as well. I mean, like, it was the entire poem, to be honest, but it was definitely some lines that hit me just on a, on a deep level from the autonomy to the, um, leave the healing to me, which reminded me of, the fact that the onus for mental safety is ultimately on us. Mm. Um, despite everything around us trying to break through our mental boundaries. Mm-hmm. And that can also include friends or partners or neighbors or colleagues who, you know, may have the best intentions but still will end up triggering us or may have malicious intentions and will trigger us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it's, it's the reminder that ultimately 
safety is our own responsibility. Like it's the responsibility of others to respect the boundaries we have, but the healing that that is an important step that is on us to do. And and also the one line that I found quite fascinating was in the penultimate um, stanza: um, "Am I the host to be consumed?" Like that entire paragraph: "Am I the host to be consumed?" The wine to be drunk, the congregants take part, no matter their sins, I'm to forgive, which mind blown. Also, all of the feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, that reminded me of, uh, I keep going back to like uh, Asia Brian Wilkinson's, like the, the poem I re- uh, referenced earlier, because mm-hmm. in that same poem, she also had a line about um, the body being a metaphor, but also questioning what comes first. Is it the body or the metaphor? Mm-hmm. As in, was like in her case, she said, was my black body created to be a physical representation of pain? Mm. Or was the state of suffering created to give my body a name, make it black, call it a woman? Mm. And so when, when I read that bit about, you know, like, like the consumption, as well as, you know, almost like the terms and conditions of the contract to sign, which may make people feel that they have claim over you, over your body, I definitely could relate to that in the sense of, when people will rather consume the art but not support the artist. As you said mm-hmm. earlier, that you know, a lot of people are more interested in the in the art that comes out but not the process that the artist takes to get that, mm-hmm. or even in the artist at all. Yeah. Um, but in, in, in this case, as, as you know, not even as an artist, but as, as just a person, the notion of knowing that, wow, like, in vulnerable states, it does feel like being consumed mm-hmm. by triggers, by what's going on. And sometimes by your own self as well, when it comes to, you know, like self-doubt or like thoughts that you have similar to that going on internally in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, thought that, I, I thought that that was a great way you know, towards the end of the poem. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I loved it. I, 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 I absolutely loved it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I felt like, um, given what you just told me about your background, that, you know, these two stanzas, last two stanzas might ring a special bell for you as well, because this idea of uh, being sacrificed, right? The, The story of Jesus is for the greater good, right? But I wanted to turn the idea on its head about, are we being sacrificed for the greater good? Who's, right? Uh Uh So whose good is it really for? Is it, I mean, ultimately, I feel like many people are being sacrificed for the selfishness of certain people. And that's why I also end with the, this idea of, don't judge, lest ye be judged, which is another very, very well-known line that Jesus supposedly said. Especially, I think it was uh, during the moment before they were trying to stone the adulteress, right? Was it the adulteress or she was the other woman? I can't, I don't remember, I don't know the story because I'm actually not religious, ironically. (laughs) But these lines are just so prevalent in our cultures, you know, don't judge lest you be judged. At the same time, when terrible people, when people who behave horribly badly 
usurp these lines, usurp these wonderful sayings that have beautiful principles behind them to serve their own selfish purposes. What happens then? And that's why I kind of wanted to turn that idea on his head and use it in a different way. Love that. I love when poems like this just um, get imagery and metaphors from, I'll say areas, um, not sure if I can call religion an area, but like from, from, from other subject matters and integrate it in a way that looks and feels and sounds so beautiful. And actually, while I was reading, while I, you know, while I was reading it, also when I was you know, hearing you perform it, the image that I had in my head for some reason was of a one of those stained glass windows in those really big, tall Catholic churches, the really colorful ones, with mm-hmm. maybe a picture of Mary and a lamb and Jesus. And it was it was that beautiful imagery of you know, like light shining through that. And yeah, it, it just took me somewhere. It just took me to a place. But mm-hmm. it also took me to a place that felt familiar because what you talked about is an experience that is familiar to so many people from being triggered to the effects of those triggers mentally and emotionally on the person from doing your best to give out you know like your creativity to then see that actually it's mostly being consumed to the point where you also do feel consumed mm-hmm. to the point where you have to ask yourself as you said for whose benefit because i'm not benefiting here and if anything i'm feeling drained mm-hmm. so if i'm churning out all of this just for other people to you know get the benefit of it, but I'm actually just still running on empty. What is the purpose behind all of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I think especially, and, and you feel especially exhausted, right, when you are performing your work that that took atrocity to create. Personal yeah. as well as more worldwide trauma to create and when people are consuming it as entertainment then you feel like you did all of that for nothing yeah. so that's a great point and actually that that kind of brings a question how do you personally write about such personal and i also imagine you know, the triggering topics while also keeping yourself safe do you have any have you found any um, um, methods in your in your writing or any techniques um, to help like, safeguard yourself um, while not feeling consumed, while also still being able to keep true to your words and your experience on the page? I feel like um, going back to what you said about poetry as therapy is that the writing process itself is therapeutic. It's almost like I'm bleeding out the poison. <laughs> I wrote, I'm laughing because I wrote a Twitter tweet the other day where I'm like, I bleed out my bleak all over the page so I can be jovial in real life. Oh. Oh. Like, I'm yeah. being, I'm trying to be funny there, of course, but it's not entirely untrue. You know? The writing itself is my outlet. Um, I don't write necessarily for this to be consumed. I don't write necessarily to say, if nobody listens to me, then this becomes nothing. It is, to me, still something because I was able to write it out. 
I was able to extract the poisonous aspect of what happened and then go on with the better parts of my life and also go on with the lessons I've taken away from writing pieces like this because I'm also reflecting on the experience, right? And also trying to, especially during the editing process, you have to give yourself emotional distance in order to edit these pieces. So in some way, it allows me to self-analyze. So I, I feel like in that, the writing itself is helpful. Um, and so I don't personally see it as a re-traumatizing so much as a letting out, letting go of things that would just eat at me if I didn't put it on the page. So essentially, definitely does reinforce that, you know, poetry for you is definitely therapy. Oh, it yeah. is a way of, you know, it is a benefit to your mental health, essentially. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think a lot of writers do it because they need to get out these words that they, these words plague them otherwise, these ideas and words I guess partly because I've had other lives before becoming a poet I don't invest as much not so much importance or weight I don't I don't know how to express it to being a poet as in a poet that has an audience oh yeah 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 wow so in that um, it's kind of freeing Absolutely, especially as as an outlet, which you know does not need external validation for it to still be valid. Mm-hmm. Um, like it is still part of you. It is still you letting out what you feel, what these fears or concerns or triggers and traumas on the page, and it is still a poem. It is still a, a, a great piece of creative art. Um, Thank you. And I, 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 love, I love the way you know you put it as. This is you that getting out the poison just so it's out of your system, but at least it's still somewhere. Almost as documenting the fact that I went through that and came out the other end, and this poem kind of shows for it. Um, mm-hmm. I I remember that I um, I went to a few workshops when I first started performing poetry professionally. But I remember that people would say, or poets would say, um, to keep that distance, that safeguard between you and the poetry, and I never really knew what they were talking about until I went through burnout from performing mm. some of this poetry because I realized that she was taking so much more energy from me than I had to give. Mm. Um, and it, it was then that I then wrote down this mantra, which, which I still repeat to myself every time I write a new poem or every time I'm you know getting ready to perform or anything like that, which is... Um, Relieve, don't relive. Mm. Re-examine, don't relive. Mm-hmm. As in, you don't have to relive what you went through. Because mm-hmm. I've, I've written some traumatic stuff from, from, you know, from black death to surviving, you know, three years of conversion therapy at the mm-hmm. hands of a cold from living, you know, um, like not quite feeling at home anywhere to like so many other things. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to realize that one, I need to write in a way where I can still read it or mm-hmm. perform it or even just skim through it without feeling like I'm being 
taken back to that place, mm. but still keeping my identity on that page. Like it still needs to feel like it's really like it, this is me right this is true to me this is genuine mm-hmm. um, and it's also okay for me to re-examine some details of it but keeping my safety you know in my head keeping my safety in mind mm-hmm. while also keeping the safety of the people you know in the audience because yes i know that you know a lot of events have trigger warnings before poems but there's also the duty of care that you also don't really want to have to trigger people just to make an impact right and it's, it, when i said i mean others in the same way also mean you yourself as a poet yeah. um and so it took me it took me years to you know to create a man a, a um like a motto that i can follow uh, and i can repeat to myself just just so that it's second nature whenever i have to write a poem or perform a poem just to make sure that i know that if it's something that's going to be like really deep like really personal and intimate it's okay for me to relieve myself off of that while performing so mm-hmm. it's kind of like I'm, I'm just leaving it here on stage i'm not giving it to the audience I'm just leaving it on stage mm-hmm. and we're all witnessing the relief of me just dumping all of this on stage but yeah. i'm gonna make it nice and pretty i'm gonna make it beautiful but in a way that doesn't tr- trigger me mm-hmm. or as much as i possibly can trigger the people in the audience because it, it, it took me it, it was after the first year of performing that I realized that, okay, yeah, I'm also responsible for the safety, like the mental safety of the people in the audience here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just about myself as a poet, but also about the people who have signed up to be here. And yeah, it, it, I'm most fascinated to see how other poets approach as well as what other mental images do they have when it comes to um, writing or performing today is triggering um, and I, I love the, the, you know, the example of just taking out the poison out um, still on the paper but at least it's out of you I love that <laughs> thank you thank you yeah I, I feel like when I'm writing I'll just write whatever comes to mind whatever I'm feeling just write it when I'm performing there's a lot more cura- curating right uh, and depending on the audience I don't necessarily go into it expecting to be understood. And I think that that helps to calibrate the expectations, especially if I'm reading something that's personally painful. And that's why also, you know, to keep myself in a safe space, um, I also decided not to or try to avoid uh, performance, not performance, but slam poetry as much as possible. I'm just like, oh, yeah. You know, slam poetry is very much like opening a vein in front of people and letting them judge it. And I'm just like, yeah, no, I did that. It felt horrible. And I never wanted to do it again. And I don't know how the people who can do it, do it. Obviously, the ones that are being publicized are the ones who get high scores. So they do get positive feedback from it. At the same time, there's only one winner there, right? It's always only one winner at the end of the day. So it, it's it's kind of tra- trauma reinforcement to me, those settings. So I try to avoid that as a, just like a self-care thing as well. And also when I'm, I'm reading, depending on the audience, I will try to trigger, not meaning to hurt, but to be pr- provocative in reading pieces that talk about 
different types of trauma that both I have personally experienced and also social issue trauma. Um, that I, th- I feel like maybe the audience is not as familiar with, but I also package the reading pieces so that they are provoked thought-wise and feeling-wise, but then they're left in, uh, you know, at least in some sense of, a little sense of comfort. So they don't avoid thinking about the bad things, period. Because, and and I also don't want them to uh, leave feeling like, oh, nothing bad happens on Earth. <laughs> you know. So somewhere in between, at least that's my intention. Whether or not I achieve that, no idea. Not really, don't, don't really know. <laughs> I, 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 I love that because it, it, it's poetry, whether it's in written form or a podcast like this or audio book or events or whatever, mm-hmm. they, they're not just there. They're definitely poems that I go to if I want to have a laugh. Like if I want to have a laugh, I'll pull on um, Fatima Asghar's poem, Brutal Shit in the Universe, which is highly recommended if I want to have a laugh. Or if I want to rally cry around blackness, then I can pull on. Poor Sholai Wallace, Turekia Boy. Um, mm-hmm. um, so like, there are definitely poems that are there for comfort, but there's also poetry that is there to move people. And sometimes you do need that poetry to just put you in a place of discomfort mm-hmm. because that's where growth happens. Yeah. Growth doesn't really happen in a place of just comfort. Growth doesn't happen if you, know, if you just stay in your comfort zone. And mm-hmm. um, understanding other people's experiences, being able to relate to other people's you know, lived experiences, like that happens when you actually step out of your usual poetry and actually read or listen to or pay to uh, attend a, a poetry night where there are poets who talk about other lived experiences other than yours. Mm-hmm. And and then there's a there's a blessing in sitting in that discomfort. Like there's like knowing that, oh, I feel uncomfortable. Okay, but why am I feeling uncomfortable? What am I learning from this? What is this poem telling me? Is there a specific line or word or phrase? Maybe the delivery, maybe the whole thing that made me feel something. Okay, well, there's something I can learn from that. Um, and, and poetry nights and just poetry in general, they, they, they are an educational tool not only to learn how to move through life with some peace and some calm and some serenity, wherever we can find it, but also as a way to understand it. Mm. Also, as a way for us to understand ourselves and others, mm-hmm. especially at a time, you know, with the pandemic and all, at a time where people are alone in so many ways they can't, you know, that we can't understand, not even themselves. Mm. It is nice to be able to, you know, feel like you're reaching out even just by listening to this podcast, or even just by reading a poem that has, you know, that covers other themes, other topics that are different from the usual, but are different from what you know to be the usual mm-hmm. um, and if that may contain some triggers then i think that those two are helpful to understand like why is this triggering you mm-hmm. and you know that trigger still been valid of course but why is this triggering you and what does this say and is there something you can learn from this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's a it's a balance and you know when you're when you're reading in front of people that you've never met before even if you met them you, you never know if the, you, you hit that right balance, you try. You, we can only try, right? So I think it's it's great that you know you also when you read, think about 
how your pieces might be triggering others. Because often we read in places where we are comfortable or, you know, we are familiar or they're familiar with us. And in that they became familiar because they share some similar experiences. But in talking about our trauma, we also invoke their trauma. So it's great that you are being considerate of that in your readings. It, it definitely is time for like a, a maybe like a breathing exercise but after that <laughs> <laughs> so, so some chamomile tea or just something to just relax and unwind while listening to some poetry why not <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, it, it, it's it's fascinating it is a growing art and it's an art through which a lot of people can grow and it's just beautiful to see how other people approach it so that's why you know, when, when, when I read the relapses, I thought, I do, one, want to hear how you perform it, because I, I want to hear the original version, <laughs> and then two, I, I want to have a conversation about it, because it, it, it was one of those poems that made me go, wow, this, uh, like, there is some pain in here that kind of calls out my pain as well. I want to like, have a conversation about this. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for this. Thank you so much for the, the opportunity and for the time. I really appreciate that. Thank you. And I appreciate you as well as a poet. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate your time and your willingness to share work that is that unfortunately brings back memories of pain. And I'm glad we were able to dive into the preamble and talk about how we as people want to be seen, especially people, marginalized people, want to be seen as fully-fledged human beings, you know? (laughs) You know, when you're saying it, it just sounds really obvious, but it's not obvious, unfortunately, to many people. Um, But before I let you go, uh, I would really appreciate it if you would tell us a... If you have any, you know, uh, favor virtual open mics, poetry, LGBT, of course. And also, the second thing is how people can follow you. Sure. So, um, for open mics, I honestly, (laughs) I don't really have a regular one with the exception of poetry LGBT, Mm -hmm. uh, which you can find on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and now Clubhouse as well, Mm -hmm. um, hosted by the incredible Andrew and Eliane. and so, yeah, it's the first Sunday of every month. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find me there. But I don't really have any other regular ones. I just like to attend new ones because I like to I like to just meet, like, you know, new different audiences, especially now that most of us have gone virtual. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I also do have a preference for <laughs> queer spaces slash black and POC spaces. So if there are any of, you know, any of those, yeah, you'll most likely find me there. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of where you can find me, Usually I would say you can find me on Instagram, but I'm going through an Instagram detox this year, mm. which has actually been pretty helpful. Mm. Um, it's quite nice to just wake up and not, you know, check your feed first thing when you wake up, because then you consume other people's feelings mm. before even checking in on what your feelings are. Mm. But anyway, off on a tangent. And um, you can find me on Hello Poetry, so that's on hellopoetry.com mm-hmm. forward slash Ben K. Ellis. And you can also just reach out to me for any questions, feedback, comments, anything at all um so my email is ben k ellis at a as in h-e-y dot com okay 
Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. In addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.